forward. Let's go backward and remind ourselves where we're at. Let's go all the way back, back to the beginning of Jeremiah, because I think we could all benefit from a refresher. The beginning of Jeremiah, we read that he's called to ministry, he's called to prophesy in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. And so we can peg that as 627 B.C. Assuming Jeremiah was in his 20s when God called him to ministry. The, the, the word in Hebrew says that he was young. He could be a little younger, probably not a lot older. If we assume that he's in his 20s, that would mean he was born during the reign of Manasseh. What do we know about Manasseh? Worst period king, period, ever, period. At least the worst king in Judah's history. Josiah is Manasseh's grandson. And Josiah, we remember, ushers in an era of reformation. Probably not an exaggeration to say an era of revival. But it was too little too late. The wickedness and depravity that had taken hold of Judah under Manasseh's reign wasn't to be dislodged. And, and, and we can't lay all of it at the feet of Manasseh because there were wicked kings who preceded him as well. And collectively, they'd sealed Judah's fate. By the time God called Jeremiah to speak for him, to be his spokesperson, God had already decreed judgment against the southern kingdom. By the time Jeremiah is ministering, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah were all in the rearview mirror. They had already declared, yeah, judgment is coming. Jeremiah's job was essentially to remind Judah of that, to keep that promise of impending judgment in front of his countrymen so that when it happens, because God had already said it's going to happen, there would be no question about why it was happening. God didn't want there to be any confusion that he had not only allowed it, but actually ordained it which makes for not an especially fun ministry if you're Jeremiah. Those aren't, those aren't pleasurable words to speak. Not an ex, a particularly fun ministry and not an especially fruitful ministry in traditional terms. We don't see people coming to God under Jeremiah. We don't see any widespread repentance or turning back to the word because of Jeremiah's ministry, which is okay because that wasn't God's expectation. And, but but you, you know in your ministry, in our ministries, we know that we don't see all of the fruit and we're not called to measure the fruit of our ministry. We're called to what? Be obedient. We know that. Jeremiah knew that. But it still gets discouraging, right? It had to be discouraging, especially because Jeremiah was preaching things to come that didn't come for decades. It was almost 40 years before the first of the things that Jeremiah prophesied came to pass. So in the eyes of many people, for the majority of Jeremiah's ministry, he wasn't just wrong, but laughably wrong. There were some who called Jeremiah a false prophet. And, and at times, Jeremiah is really honest. We, we see more clearly the, the person of Jeremiah in his messages than we do, I think, any other prophet, except maybe Hosea. 
At times he's very raw, very authentic, very honest about his struggles because he's got these weighty messages about the defeat of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, the the demolition of the temple. Those, Those things that he's given, just horrific things he's given a preview of. But he's preaching them to people who claim to be God and at the same time don't heed his words even a little bit. And he does that again and again and again for years. It's not for nothing that Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. So far in our study, we've looked at chapters 1 through 9. Chapter 1 is Jeremiah's call to ministry. Chapter 2 starts another, a major chunk of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 2 to 25 are prophecies specifically of Judah. And they're not in order. One notable feature of Jeremiah, and I know we've talked about this, but like I said, it's been a minute. One notable feature of of the book of Jeremiah, the messages that are compiled here, the sermons, if you want to call them those, the sermons of Jeremiah assembled in this book are not in chronological order. There's more of a topical flow to the book. And in some cases, we're able to suss out from context or because Jeremiah gives us the date. And in some cases, we're able to peg, okay, this was under this king, this was about this time. Other parts of Jeremiah, it's a complete mystery. And the part that we left off in the middle of is one of those mysterious chunks. Chapter 1 dates itself. Chapters 3 through 6, we think we're given around the same time as chapter 1. We get to chapter 7 Nobody claims to know for sure. Chapter chapter 7 specifically, maybe, because it parallels chapter 26, and chapter 26 talks about being given during the reign of Jehoiakim. So if we think that they're actually the same message, just two different records of it, well, then we could say chapter 7 was somewhere 608, 598 B.C. But that's speculative, and chapter 8, 9, and 10 subsequent messages along the same theme. We've got no clue. Were they given earlier, later, at the same time? No idea. And even commentators who labor over putting Jeremiah in chronological order, they get to 7, 8, 9, and 10, and they shrug and say, your guess is as good as mine. But the subject is straightforward. If we wanted to give it a, a, a headline, chapter 7 through 10, the headline would simply be idolatry. Chapter 7, we had an example of idolatry, the temple. Judah was making an idol out of the temple. They were worshiping the temple and not the God of the temple. Chapters 8 and 9, 8 verse 4 till 9 verse 22, we've got the consequences of worshiping idols. And then the end of 9 and through 10, we've got a contrast between God and idols. Just a little bit of, of a refresher, a little bit of a reminder how we got here. Let's read from where we got to. Chapter 9, verse 22. Speak. Thus says the Lord. God says to Jeremiah, tell them this. Even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. That was where we left off. Thus says the Lord, God is continuing. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this. In what? That he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord, exercising loving kindness Judgment and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. 
So we see the transition there between chapter, between verse 22 and verse 23. That's why we broke off there, because God is beginning a new thought. And he's beginning by saying, hey, three things people shouldn't brag about. Wisdom, human wisdom. Might, strength, power, fame, influence. And wealth. What do people brag about today? Nothing new under the sun. Don't brag about your wisdom, your might, your riches, God says. Brag about me. Brag that you know me. The one who ministers loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. Loving kindness in the Hebrew can also be translated faithfulness. Faithfulness in the sense of promise keeping. You might just make a note in your margin or, 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 or circle that because I think that might be relevant later. Boast in me that you have a relationship with me, that you know who I am, that, that we're friends. Resonates a little bit with what we talked about on Sunday, if you think about it. Paul talking to Felix. Paul talked to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And we said those three things together comprise the gospel. We're called to righteousness. If we fail to achieve righteousness through our own self-control comes judgment. That's the essence of the gospel. God is saying here, hey, wisdom, might, wealth, none of those things, not the sum of those things, will bring you to God. Only God can bring you to God. Only through God's loving kindness can we escape justice and receive righteousness. A little gospel just kind of tucked in there for us. The other thing implicit, I think, in verse 24 is the idea that if we come to God, we will be like God, we'll resemble God. If we're children of God, you and I, we should have a family resemblance to God. So to the children of Israel. God says, you should be more like me than not. Faithful, just, righteous. And that could be a whole sermon right there, but God is just getting going. Verse 24, 25. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I'll punish all who are circumcised with the uncircumcised. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners, who dwell in the wilderness. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the heart of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. You claim to be my people, God is saying, but you prove by your actions that you aren't. You claim to be my people, but you prove by your values that you're not. You, you glory in all the wrong things, verse 24. You don't practice the right things. Sorry, you glory in the wrong things, verse 23. You don't practice the right things, verse 24. And so judgment is coming. The same judgment that's going to come upon the nations. It, it's a little bit cryptic in the, in the New King James translation. But let's, let's step out of the text for just a moment and remind ourselves of what we know. Circumcision was something that God commanded Abraham as, as something that would mark the, the, his descendants got to be God's people, heirs to God's promises. Israel was not the only nation that practiced circumcision. In fact, the list of nations that God gives us here 
at one time or another all practiced at least a form of circumcision. Sometimes not universally, sometimes it was just among a certain class or caste of people. And what God is saying is, look, circumcision outwardly doesn't really differentiate you from the people around you. And the circumcision that really matters, the circumcision that's supposed to take place inwardly, the circumcision of your heart, well, that's not differentiating you from the nations around you at all. Look at how God sandwiches Judah in there between Egypt and Edom. It's a rogues gallery. And and their Judah is prominent on the roster. The outward sign means nothing if the inward condition isn't aligned. How often did we hear Paul say that in Romans? And before that in Galatians, right? How powerfully did Jesus articulate that? Yeah, outside you're, you're meticulous, you're whitewashed tombs. Christine on the outside and dead, corrupt on the inside. All kinds of nations practice circumcision, God tells Judah, but you're no different than them. You're not being different than them. And so you'll be judged alongside them. It's like, God says, it's like you don't even know me. Which means, if we cross over to chapter 10, you're knowing someone besides me, having a relationship with someone besides me, treasuring someone, worshiping someone who's not me. And as we get into chapter 10, God is going to say, and that's really dumb. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, our house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Don't be dismayed at the signs of heaven. The Gentiles are dismayed at them. The customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Don't be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Israel, throughout throughout the book of Jeremiah, Israel and Judah are, are sometimes used interchangeably. Sometimes he says Israel and means the northern kingdom, but often he means God's people Israel. And here he's saying Israel learned all the wrong things from her Gentile neighbors, the pagan nations that that surrounded the land. Learned all, imported all kinds of idolatry, astrology and, 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 and other idolatry having to do with the heavens, verse 2. And, and decorated posts and carvings, verse 3, 4, and 5. Upright like a palm tree, by the way, in, in uh, the NIV it, it, instead of saying upright like a palm tree, it, it says uh, like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Now, I like that a little bit better. It's a scarecrow. Why are, you, why are you afraid of this scarecrow? You made it. It's like you go out into the field and, and, and you see the scarecrow. And, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you made it. Why are you afraid of it? Why do you revere it? It has no power. It has no power to destroy, God says. It has no power to deliver. Only God has that power, and God does have that power. Verse 6, Inasmuch as there's none like you, O Lord, you're great and your name is great in might, who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. 
but they're altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It's brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of the craftsman and of the hands of the metalsmith. Blue and purple are their clothing. They're the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Idols, the point is, idols are dead. They're made of metal. They're made of wood. They're not alive. Only God is alive. Idols are passing. The wood rots. The metal rusts. Even the stars eventually burn out. Only God is everlasting. What's the appeal? Why throughout the centuries are we drawn to idols that we make with our own hands? Because we can see them. Why do we, why do we worship the stars, we humanity, rather than God who made the stars? Because we can see the stars. And we can plot their movements and we can tell ourselves we understand them. And things on earth, at least, we tell ourselves that we can control them. So in effect, we're being our own gods by proxy. Idols are dead. They decay. God is alive and everlasting. Idols are empty. God is mighty. Thus, verse 11, thus you shall say to them, to the idol worshipers, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. If you're rocking a study Bible tonight, it probably tells you that verse 11, uniquely in the book of Jeremiah, is in Aramaic in the original texts, not Hebrew. Why? We don't know. Theories. One would be irony, that God is talking about idols, and so he said to Jeremiah, write this down in, in the language that the Chaldeans and other nations speak. Write, write this part in an, in, in in an idol-worshipping language. That's, that's a theory. Another, another is that this is a, a quote, and this was a saying or a song, something that, that was extra-biblical that Jeremiah, under the inspiration of God, is quoting. It's a reference of something known in Jeremiah's day. But either way, it's a bridge because it kind of summarizes what God through Jeremiah has said so far and it also introduces what he's going to say next. Verse 12, he, God, as opposed to idols, has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. We sang that, I think, in two different songs in, in, in worship tonight. When he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone who doesn't know that, everyone who doesn't worship that God is dull-hearted, without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. You should be embarrassed worshiping something that you made. For his molded image is falsehood, and there's no breath in them. They're futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them. He's not like idols. He's the maker of all things, including the things he make the idols out of. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Why would we worship the heavens when God made the heavens? 
Why worship gods of, of weather and sea when God made the sea and he makes the weather? Why worship things made of precious metal when God made the metal and everything else on the earth? And, and, and then Jeremiah continues to warn us, we become like the gods we worship, verse 14. If we worship something that's lifeless, we become lifeless and dull. If we worship something that's foolish, we become foolish. If we worship something worthless, our lives have no value. We produce nothing of worth. If we worship a lie, we perish. Because in God alone is life. What's the alternative? He reminds us, verse 16, worship God. The portion of Jacob is an interesting title of God there, reminding us Jacob's portion, Israel's portion, Israel's inheritance was what? God. Israel's inheritance was God. The people that God had chosen to bless by, 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 by some fortunate turn of events, like, like in the John Mark McMillan song. God chose to call them friend, chose to bless them, chose to give them an inheritance. And Jeremiah is saying, you're wasting it. You're squandering it. And what will the result be, verse 17? Well, gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitants of the fortress. Fortress could mean, most likely means Jerusalem. Fortress could also perhaps mean the, the idols that they're taking refuge in. But more likely, this anticipates the, the invasion of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is saying, hey, collect all of the trinkets and trash that you're worshiping. You're not going to be able to carry much with you when you're driven out of the land. Be sure to bring your idols with you to the land of idol worshipers, to hand over to them, to your captors. A little bit of, of, of sarcasm here. Behold, I'll throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. When a whisper doesn't work, God uses a megaphone. And he's going to use the Babylonian invasion and the subsequent exile to get his point across. <coughs> gather up your wares, the things that you traded me for, the things that you thought were more valuable than me, bring them with you so that your captors can take them from you. And verse 19, we have words that are generally credited to Jeremiah in response to what he just spoke. This is another one of these really devastating things that God gives Jeremiah to articulate on his behalf. I'm going to expel you from the land, and you're not going to be able to carry anything of value with you. Behold, I'll throw you out. Verse 19, most people will say, Woe is me for my hurt, Jeremiah aching at having to speak these things. My wound is severe, but I say truly this is an infirmity and I must bear it. This is my ministry, and I've got to fulfill it. My tent is plundered. All my cords are broken. My children are gone from me, and they are no more. There's no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. And that's where Patrick, and this is 
not a common view. So this is a Wednesday night, put an asterisk next to it, because I'm out of skinny branches here. Could verses 19 and 20 be the Lord? A lot like we talked about at the end of chapter 8 and 9. God expressing his hurt at what he knows he will have to do. His wound, his pain that he bears. Watching a nation that he called and, a, and, and children that, that he nurtured suffer. My tent is plundered, all my cords are broken. Could that possibly be a reference to the tabernacle? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question. If you disagree, we're still friends. In a way, it's a false dichotomy. Because if Jeremiah is speaking under the inspiration of God, it is God speaking. Could it be both and? Whoever's speaking, it's clear where they cast the blame. Verse 21, for the shepherds have become dull-hearted and have not sought the Lord. Therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. Shepherds, We've, we've seen earlier in Jeremiah, when Jeremiah uses that term, he's referring to both political shepherds and spiritual shepherds. They've become dull-hearted, foolish. They're not seeking the Lord. And as a result, verse 22, behold, the noise of the report has come. Prophetic past tense, seeing something in the future as if it's already happened. And a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate a den of jackals. Jeremiah is prophesying the invasion, which we read in, in earlier chapters, God has already said, will come out of the north. And as a result, Jerusalem will be inhabited by jackals. Those could be literal jackals, or it could be just inhabited by scavengers, because jackals are scavengers. There could be nobody left but people picking through the ruins for something of value. The, the chapter concludes with these words, O Lord, I know the way of a man is not in himself. It's not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you, and on the families who do not call on your name. For they've eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him, and made his dwelling place desolate. Jeremiah is a little all over the place there in those last three verses. But let's see if we can pull out a few things that he's saying. First, he's saying that God is in control, verse 23. We plan our ways, God directs our steps. Circle back to the, to the end of chapter 9. We've got our, our riches, our wealth, our wisdom. All of it together isn't going to get us very far. It's nothing compared to God. Recognizing that, acknowledging that, Jeremiah is basically confessing that on behalf of the nation. God, this is us. Everything that you said is right. Nothing you've said is wrong. This is who we are. And God, would you, you who are mighty, you who are righteous, you who are the keeper of promises. Remember I said that, that other translation of loving kindnesses might come into play here. You who are the faithful keeper of promises, God, would you show us mercy? Would you punish us to correct us, but not to destroy us? God, you're the keeper of promises. So verse 25, yeah, destroy the Gentile nations, 
It, it kind of sounds like Jeremiah is saying, go get him, God. But Jeremiah has already said at the end of chapter 9, we got to be honest, we're no different than they are. As the Gentiles are, so Judah has become. So we have to parse what Jeremiah is saying here. On the one hand, he's saying, yeah, the Gentile nations are worthy of wrath, and by extension, we are too. The only thing that differentiates us from them is the promises you've made us. The fortunate turn of events by which you call us friends. The promise that you would bring Messiah forth from our lineage. That can't happen if we're wiped out. The promise that we will be a blessing to all nations. That can't happen if we're wiped out. The promise that that a son of David will eternally sit on the throne. That can't happen if we're wiped out. The blessing of the land, our eternal possession. That can't happen if we're wiped out. So God, we're no different in how we act. We're only different because you've said we're different. And so, God, your justice demands punishment. But God, in your loving kindness, as the keeper of promises, would you please not destroy us utterly? It's good to be back in Jeremiah. This is fun, right? Now that, now that we've, we've, we've got a little momentum back, I'm excited to see where God is going to lead us and what he's going to show us in these coming weeks. I don't have any plans to, to miss a Wednesday for a while so we can, we can get ahead of steam. Coming out of tonight, though, I think I'm going to be meditating on verse 21 for a while. We'll go forward and we'll, 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 we'll dig into to more chapters and we'll study more of of what God has. Verse 21 is going to stay with me. Because I got to ask, okay, is that me, Lord? The shepherd who isn't seeking God? And as I ask that of myself, I hope that elders, I hope that ministry leaders, I hope that fathers are, are likewise asking, God, what kind of shepherd am I? Am I seeking the Lord? Well, I'm none of those things, so I'm off the hook. Well, but all of us are accountable for the shepherds that we read, the shepherds that we listen to, the shepherds we take direction from, the, you know, the, the, the shepherds we take news and information from and act accordingly, are the people who even indirectly are shepherding us, are they seeking the Lord? and hearing from the Lord, and following the Lord. And you know, it's easy to get jaded, because we've all encountered our share of false prophets, our share of charlatans who attach, thus saith the Lord, to everything they speak. The Lord told me this about the election, thus saith the Lord. The Lord told me this about the earthquake, thus saith the Lord. It's, I mean, to, to the point where, understandably, we're, we almost are, are reflexively suspicious when someone said, oh, I was seeking the Lord, and the Lord revealed this to me. But, but, but what's the alternative? You know, I mean, the, the fact that something can be counterfeited tells us that there's something genuine out there, or there wouldn't be anything to counterfeit. 
we need to be wary of shepherds, leaders, spiritual and secular, who are following, like Jeremiah warned us tonight, something not the Lord. And there are plenty of things that have the appearance of godliness that are not God. Shepherds who, who espouse principles, who, who articulate rules, who lay out precepts and, and speak of grand ideologies. Well, those things can be useful up to the point where we start esteeming them above the Lord. Because just like God made the stars, don't worship the stars, God made the stars. Worship the maker of the stars. Don't worship the weather. God makes the weather. We need to be careful of, of esteeming even, even principles and values above God, who is the source of all truth. Because even if we take godly ideas and we substitute following them for seeking the Lord, we've just made our principles and values what? Idols. If we follow them, if we take guidance from them, if we rely on them to the exclusion of God, Jeremiah tonight called us fools, dull-hearted. In the secular realm, the Constitution, the rule of law, the Bill of Rights, sovereignty, liberty, these are, these are precious to us and for good reason. But if they become the things that we worship, and we allow those things to become a substitute for seeking God, we've just made them idols in, in, the, in the spiritual realm. We, we talk here a, a lot about community. We talk a lot about grace, a lot about truth. We have to be careful. Truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. Oftentimes in ministry, we'll, we'll ask, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? What does love say? And we can look at what the Word says about love, and the Word has a lot to say about love. But at the end of the day, we need to go to the God who is love to guide us. It's all well and good to do those things that accord with godliness, but we can't separate the things that accord from, with godliness from God. Or... Jeremiah said, we perish, our works perish. My takeaway this week, I want to make sure that, that my shepherds, the voices that I'm allowing to speak into my heart and into my life, aren't, aren't preaching ideas and ideology that are divorced by God. They are promoting wisdom and strength and wealth above the Lord, and they aren't pretending that we can be delivered by wisdom, strength, or wealth in, in, instead of God. I, I want to follow shepherds, and I want to listen to shepherds, and I want to allow myself to be built up by the teaching of shepherds that by their faithfulness and kindness and righteousness show me they're seeking God. Because then hopefully I'll be a shepherd who's also seeking God. And all of us, as we as we shepherd our own hearts. Father, thank you that you're the great shepherd and the good shepherd. 
and you delight to lead us to the clean water, to the good grass, to the safe places. Lord, thank you that you give us structure and organization of values and principles that can help guide our thinking and bring, bring coherence to our thoughts. But Lord, we don't want any of them to take the place of you. No doctrine, no dogma, no systematic theology, Lord, can contain you can express you, can, can be you, and none, none of them can love like you. None of them lead like you. None of them are a father. And we have to not make ourselves their children. Shepherd us, Lord. Parent us. Love us this week. We ask in your name. Amen.